1: Do the heat stand a chance? What are the Lakers doing so effectively? Can a banged up bam make a difference? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am joined today by Jared Weiss of The Athletic. Jared, um, there's a lot of things going on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and we need to pick one to talk about at least to start so i suppose game two from last night would be a good place what do you say
0: if we have we have to if that's
1: if that's the nba game you want to pick out of the bunch then i guess we can go with it all right let's do it let's do it so i had a live show last night where i actually brought in some angry laker fans to discuss why they were so angry it turns out wow. though why would you do that well you know what i i gotta give the people what they want and i gotta make sure that they're happy to some degree with what i'm doing and so, uh, but it turns out I'm not the only one. I guess the ringer was uh, getting all sorts of uh, grief from, um, from Lakers fans as well. It, it sounded like you know the big thrust of the issue was that like LeBron and AD maybe are not quite getting enough credit. And um, so my explanation was, you know when I'm doing a breakdown, I, like I kind we know that they're amazing. Like there's nothing really great to show about Anthony Davis facing up on Crowder and just shooting over him five times in a row. So yeah. it's, you know, and that's what happens. I don't put it in because it's not that interesting, but here I am.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think those are probably not the fans that fit into your demographic of the kind of, you know, analysis <laughs> that you're doing. If the demographic's not the right word, it's not a demographic thing. I guess, you know, target your target audience. Yeah. Um. But like, yeah, I mean, sh- yeah, Lakers fans. It's Anthony Davis and LeBron. Like we've already seen. I mean, AD, I guess there's something novel about him doing it at this level, which is something I was just talking about with uh, Krishna Narsu, who's one of the best statisticians in the public sphere in the NBA. If anyone isn't following him, definitely follow him because he does some incredible work. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But, you know, Anthony Davis, I had some concerns about whether he could be an efficient enough offensive creator and playmaker at a high level to win a championship. And uh, I have no concerns anymore. I mean, he's been been unbelievable. He's been perfect, pretty much. Uh, I mean, he was at one point, I think, 14 for 15 from the fields in that game and was passing out a double team so well. Um, I can't remember. There was a site that had hockey assists available at some point, and maybe it was NBA stats and they took it away. Oh, they did? I feel like he he must have had – maybe it's in there and I just got to go find it. I haven't seen it in a while. But – He must have had so many hockey assists in that game. They would have him flash middle, catch high, fling it to somebody else. When LeBron did it, it was almost effortless. Uh, I mean, those guys are so great that there's not much to talk about because it's not a solvable problem for the most part. Um, I mean, my story after the game on The Athletic, I did a big film study on how the Heat, they went zone for the first time in the series, obviously first time it's only been two games. Um, they only played zone on like two possessions in the first game. Um, and the zone worked really well as far as actually stopping the Lakers offense, but AD would fly in there and would just grab offensive rebound after offensive rebounds. And he actually can finish those. That's what makes them so special. Um, and I actually, I do think that the Lakers in general, but particularly Anthony Davis, um, probably have changed the conversation on the importance of rebounding and i guess we'd be honest too but i feel like rebounding is something that we've really really kind of put by the wayside over the past few years especially because there's been guys like andre drummond who has you know really high volume uh rebounding numbers you know like historically significant rebounding numbers from a per game perspective but I've even talked to people on his teams that have told me that, like, his rebounding numbers are meaningless. And so, you know, it's like we we find that it's meaningless when guys like him and Whiteside are putting up huge numbers. But then you look at what Anthony Davis has been doing throughout the playoffs, what Dwight Howard's been doing throughout the playoffs and rebounding, offensive rebounding and being able to actually convert off his offensive rebounds. It's what down the Celtics in the conference finals. It's went down the Rockets in the semifinals. I mean, the Lakers have just been killing teams by being able to create second chances. Um, And it's already so easy for them to create good opportunities and to get out to shooters anyway. So you give them more chances. And you know Jimmy Butler said after that game that he felt like that was the big difference there was that they were executing pretty well. But, you know, the Lakers, they took... Was it like 25 more three-pointers or something or 20 more three-pointers, something crazy like that? So, yeah. So, I mean, it kind of evened out in the fact that Miami drew so many fouls that the free-throw advantage was like plus 20 for them as well. So there's a bit of evening out there. But it just goes – it just went to show that the basic – analytics era philosophy of take as many three-pointers as you can because the math will work in your favor even if you shoot poorly Uh, that really presents to be true and the Lakers are doing it just because of the amount of offensive rebounding and second chances that AD creates
1: yeah I mean there was so much in there I'm not sure what I'm going to pick out first to discuss but um, (laughs) let's talk about uh, so they played like over 70 possessions a zone off of synergy now the problem is is they'll call it another possession if they get the offensive rebound and put it right back up I wouldn't call that. No, so new that was possession.
0: like twelve of those, probably. Yeah, they had sixteen overall. Like twelve of
1: them. Yeah, and they yeah. had uh, they had probably I think twenty one second chance points on sixteen uh, rebounds, something like that. Uh, but it was it was over 1.0 points per possession. Regardless, like we just know from the eye test, I added it up without doing the free throws, and I, I didn't want to feel like going through the play by play and adding up free throws. So it was at sure. least 1.0. But like you're talking about, it was so many possessions to count through. Um, and yet, you know, the the Heat kept playing it, which is interesting, right? I mean, they they, they have not come anywhere near uh, close to 73 possessions in a game all playoff long, as far as I could tell from our tracking. track. And the most I had seen was like 50, 52, 53. So, uh, but again, when you're so shorthanded and you don't have like a bam out of bio to play an Anthony Davis, then it's like, what are you supposed to do? You can't really let Olenek try and guard him. You know, we saw Crowder try it and he just shot right over him. But, um, so that's the only the only thing about Anthony Davis is it's like he's playing against college players right now. He's six inches taller than the guy guarding him, and he can just face up and just wait as much as he likes and then shoot it. Um, and then on the rebounds, too, it's really kind of uh, stark how uh he can you know there's just no nobody who is anywhere near his size, and so I hope he would be doing some sort of damage about that. Now, the thing about shooting the threes, it also combines with a low uh, free throw account. And I know that there were people complaining about how, oh, look how many, you know, how few free throws the Lakers got. But it was like they're just jacking up a lot of threes and the Heat are playing zone. So they're not going yeah. to foul as much, and you know, there's not going to be attack. And then on the other side, he were really attacking strong to the basket a lot and getting a lot of free throws. So that was a weird flip of the, uh, of the script because, listen, the only way that he'd have a chance to win is if they make more threes than the Lakers. They have to make four, five, six more threes than the Lakers. They just have to. And it, that was the other right. way last night. Trying to listen and learn on a screen can be a challenge, but not when you're using masterclass. You can learn an incredible amount with the highest production value by heading over to MasterClass.com and choosing online instruction from over 75 experts in their fields. Even their YouTube ads are mesmerizing. I never skip them and can't wait to dive into Ron Howard's film directing class and Neil deGrasse Tyson's scientific thinking course. I'm going through Steph Curry's masterclass on shooting and it's been eye-opening to say the least and no one has studied his shooting mechanics more closely than I have, and yet I'm still learning things straight from the source. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass, and as a B-Ball Breakdown listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash bball. That's masterclass.com slash bball for 15% off Masterclass. Even though Lakers shot poorly, like you had said, as far as the the volume of threes go and the, the value of that versus rebounds, um, you know, the when you get when you get 15 more points from behind the line, then it you're and, and you're out rebounding them on their offensive boards. Like it's a guarantee. The only interesting thing though was that they couldn't pull away. It, it should have been a guaranteed blowout. It should have been 18, 19, 20 point. They could not get more than 10 points away from this team. And it's fascinating to me why. And do you have a feeling about that and what the return of Bam Adebayo could possibly mean because of that?
0: Thank you for uh, helping me plug my piece again. So uh, the reason why was that I thought the heat zone was very good and we can get into some of the adjustments that they made. Um, and then Miami was just hyper aggressive on offense. Hero was aggressive again. Kendrick Nunn playing Kendrick Nunn has worked really well. He's. He's like the there was a play where he attacked the pick and roll on LeBron and got by LeBron and somehow tucked in a reverse just before LeBron got it in there. I think Hero might have had a fast break where he put he put it right off of the glass out of his hand just to make sure LeBron couldn't touch it. I mean, this was the heat feeling a desperation and showing that they could step up in that moment. And I, I just I really do still believe that the heat have the, you know, all the heat culture stuff that can actually give them a chance in the series with Bam coming back. Because when you watch the zone that they were in with Linux most of the time, when Leonard was out there, they played a couple alternating possessions of zone, but not very much of it. And, um, oh, by the way, Shams literally just tweeted that Autobio and Dragic are listed as doubtful for game three. But Autobio did tell Chris Haynes after the game that he plans to play in game three. But Spolstra also said before Game 2 that he's had to be a parent as much of a coach and try to tell his guys, I know you guys are begging to play, but unfortunately we can't play you because, you know, you have a career ahead of you. We don't want you to completely tear your shoulder and ruin your career, you know. So it's you know it's the right move. Um, and I'm I'm pretty confident that Miami has a chance to get back there considering Bam is just scratching the surface on his potential. But so the point is, is that there were so many plays at the rim where – Omlinik was just he was just stuck on the ground and couldn't make the play while I mean I know Bam's shoulder is hurt but his feet aren't and his footwork's amazing and his balance is amazing his reaction speed is great there were a lot of plays where he could have affected them you know one of them was there was a play where they were I think down 10 in the middle of the fourth quarter and Danny Green drove baseline against the zone that did a good job of forcing it to him I am pretty sure it was him in the corner and he drives baseline and throws a perfect little bounce pass along the baseline to LeBron, who I think had like Kendrick Nunn sealed underneath the rim. And LeBron did that classic thing where he's like behind the backboard. Then he just takes like one step back, throws the guy out of the way and puts up the layup. And Olinick just kind of stared at the play. And, you know, out would have gone up there. He would have contested. He would have. You know, there was a chance he would have been able to get the stop on that play. And there was like probably six or seven examples of that where Olenek was just not able to get off the ground and, and challenge for as good of a defensive performance as he had overall considering how long he played. But so I do think if if Bam is able to play in game three, then they do have a chance to actually get those stops that LeBron and AD just killed them with. They get those offensive rebounds that were killing them. And they were close enough that they – you know, if they're making the if they're not giving those second chance opportunities or those easy layup opportunities, they, they could close that gap for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were enough Olenek, uh terrible defensive possessions out of that zone that just made me feel like anybody would have been better. They had a, they put Rondo in the middle, uh, which I really like that idea of flashing him to the middle of the two, three zone. And, you know, Rondo turns the face of the basket and shoots a floater. And again, Alinek didn't even take a step toward him, didn't put a hand up, didn't even really feel like, oh, I got to make sure I stay close to AD. Because he didn't even do that either, if that could have been the reason. And um, so he was just no presence at all. There's another drive that LeBron had. So remember, with this zone, there's some fatal flaws in the zone, which is why... I just can't believe you're going to even try to play more than like the 50 possessions that they do normally do, Uh, and one of them is the gap between the guard and the forward. Oftentimes, and then and they're doing a good job. The Lakers are of filling the the corners when you fill the corners, it puts the forward at a really difficult situation every single time. So LeBron drives the gap from the wing. And so obviously the forward's going to kind of stunt and get back because he doesn't want to give up the shot to the corner. And so that's – and then Olenek would be there. And then, you know, Morris literally just pushes him out of the way so he can do – he actually did a very nice inside-hand lefty layup off of that shot, which is not easy. But, um, you know, and the refs probably could have – should have called that. But it was like Kelly needs to be so much better than what what they were – Than he was. Um, The other problem I have is that when they swing the ball from one side to the other, and they have that strong side or that corner filled in the wing, in the wing field. The guard on top cannot get back to that wing as it's swinging to him quickly enough, which forces the forward to step up and mark the wing for a second. And then as the guard comes, he can bump down and then now he can get the corner. Well, they can't cover that fast enough. And the Lakers continually get two on ones between the wing and the corner and that forward. And they're just getting corner threes open. Um, and it's like, I don't, they, they need to adjust that in some intrinsic way or just be willing to say the Lakers don't shoot that well from three. Um, they don't normally take that many threes. So we'll just sort of roll the dice on those and hope, but it's not really worked out well for them. And then lastly, the Lakers made, I think, four or five stationary rhythmless threes, having already caught the ball, jabbed, like looked around, and then, like, oh, I'm now going to shoot it. Those are not easy. Those are not normally the kind of shots you make often. And I think it was ended up being the difference between why the Lakers made five more than they they did. Um, And so Spolster has to say to himself, well, they're not going to make all of those again. um, And that's going to give us a little bit more of a gap. And then we're going to add something. Now, I think, by the way, that none might be better than Dragic at this point, the way he's moving. So I think that that might even be a plus for them. But it's it's got to be banned. He's got to do they need to get him back uh, by hook or by crook and figure out if they can, you know, not hurt him for the rest of his career.
0: So, I, while I do agree with you that those are definitely issues, for one, we saw in the fourth quarter, Miami, they were going they were going into all out sprints to get back to the weak side when the ball was swinging. And that was working really well. There was even one play where Tyler Hero, like ran like a full sprint around the arc and eventually got to LeBron in the corner and had to like run past LeBron. LeBron just kind of up fake and sidestepped him. Hero kind of got back to him, but it was kind of like you know, half-hearted at that point. But LeBron did miss the shot because, up faking a defender out of the way, and then sidestepping and kind of pulling up from there. Um, when you know the defender is still trying to come back to you, it does throw your rhythm off a little sure. bit. And so it's actually, it actually is like a contested shot essentially. Well, so they were they were really good at that. That's oh, a ahead, ahead.
1: that's a win for the defense, but not for long. You know, at some point it's going to be a thing. It's not enough to get in the shot, fake sidestep and shoot it. Whereas in the past we've been like hallelujah, that's great, interrupt the rhythm, the whole thing. Everyone's getting so good at that that you have to, then, like you yeah. mentioned, you have to be like landing and bouncing right back, and then somehow bothering him again from behind. Otherwise, it's not going to work.
0: And it's—I don't think it's sustainable to be sprinting, you know, dead sprints recoveries over and over again throughout That's the game. Good point. Um, and and he doesn't have with, with Drogic and Ma'am out. They don't have the depth right now to be able to do that. Um, although I think we're going to see a lot more Derek Jones for Andre Iguodala because Iguodala. For all the good stuff he did, he I picked out a few plays where he just kind of half-hearted contested on shots that were like right in front of him that weren't even hard contests. And those were the plays that were really hurting them. But so I, I want to go over the two things that they did in the zone that were different in this game. So Miami's generally been in, a, in kind of an inverted 2-3 where they have their forwards up top and their guards on the back line on the two corners. So it's usually Crowder and Butler point of attack up top. And then Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero in the corners or you know whatever other guard. So that's that's a unique wrinkle that they have. Um, the first thing that they did to change it was that generally, at least in the Boston series and how the zone usually works for them, when, they, um, when the ball is on an elbow, because the whole point of the zone is you want to – if you're doing prevent offense, is you want to keep swinging it between the elbows to eventually catch them out of position. So ball goes to the elbow both of the guys at the top of the zone tended to basically pressure that way and the weak side corner guy which was usually like Tyler Hero would lift up to the weak side elbow so they would temp they would temporarily be in a 3-2 en- essentially and so that was kind of how they played the weak side at the beginning in this game what they did instead was they would actually have that weak side corner guy go into the paint and kind of straddle the weak the, kind of the weak side of the paint to be ready to sprint back out if the ball swung, and that allowed them to put the middle guy, who was usually Kelly Olynyk, up onto whoever flashed to the middle. So that way they could keep a body on whoever is flashing into the middle. But they were completely overloaded ball side, and if the Lakers had two guys on the weak side, they would be toast. So it, it actually was working pretty well. Um, but a big problem was that once they would try to rec- once the zone would try to recover to the weak side. That middle flashing guy would be able to get down right near the rim and Olenek wouldn't be able to have a body on him to take away to front him before the pass would come in. So the Lakers would then send it to the dunker spot who would then ping it back right into the middle of the paint and they could finish. So like LeBron or AD were playing out of the dunker spot on the strong side a lot of the time, which you never really see. And that was very interesting. So what Spo did to combat that was – and tell me if you're lost at this point
1: because I'm going – I mean I, good luck fast. if you're listening to this, but OK. <laughs> Okay, So basically,
0: same zone, but even overloading more towards the strong side. So getting super aggressive as possible was what the Heat were doing. So once they were getting taken advantage of, they needed to find a way to get a body behind and in front whoever was in the middle of the zone for the Lakers. Because they wanted to both prevent LeBron or AD from catching the ball and prevent him from being able to just turn around and put in a shot. So what they started doing was... But I I was calling it a one one three zone, which would be Jimmy Butler up top, and then either Jay Crowder or, or uh, Igudala basically playing at the nail, playing at the free throw line. So you have like one guy at the at the perimeter, one guy in the mid range, and then three guys on the baseline. And that way they were able to keep a couple bodies on the guy in the middle. But then they were also exposed really badly on the weak side, and they didn't have enough ball pressure to really contain at the at the actual point of attack. And that, that worked really well, and they did that for most of the second half. I thought that worked very well, um, but then LeBron was able to counter it by he would just stand up towards, like, the top of the key – and Rondo such a smart passer, he would somehow be able to get the entry past the LeBron, and then LeBron would just kick it to the guy that was like five feet away from him who would immediately pop up the shot. So the Lakers would be passing the ball like five feet at a time, which is like insane in the NBA, and they were just moving it so quickly that they were still getting shots. So right. it just shows – how exceptional this Lakers offense is.
1: Well, being a, a, an amoeba coach, which is a one-one-three alignment and hyper aggressive zone, uh, it actually was a, it looked to me more like a one-three-one. Uh, they looked like they were more across uh, those three players, and then one like the the big on the bottom. And I, what I remember from seeing that, it wasn't it wasn't that many times, but I do remember they had Crowder up high or then Butler up high as a single. Uh, and it was a weird alignment. It was hard to sort of recognize completely clearly if it was like 131 or 113 or however you want to do it. But... Um, it, you know, they got burned badly on just a quick uh, wing to corner, and there's nobody there to get to the corner because, again, that wing player has to guard both the wing and the corner, the way this is set up. Now, it, when I coached the, the Amoeba, that corner uh, shooter would be covered by the center, would be the guy in the middle, has to close out there. But they obviously don't want to do that because it would be Olenek or whoever else would need a rebound. So that's a problem, but it would be an easy fix to at least stop the th- the three. But um, but then again, now you're really getting pulled out of position. But they're so small as it is, they might have to consider trying that. And actually, because I know Myers Leonard gave up a three to AD, I think it was in the first half where he just stayed on the block. It actually looked like a one two two at that point. They they did flip it up a little bit, and it looked like a one two two. And then but then but here's what's confusing to me: I'm watching Duncan Robinson get confused. Where he thinks he's still in a 2-3, so he's kind of like, well, I have to go back to the corner, but wait, no, it's 1-2-2, two, two. I could stay on the wing. And then he's, he, he kind of starts to go to the corner and then stays on the wing. And then to, uh, to, uh, Rondo, who then just throws it to AD in the corner. And then boom, there is, um, uh, Myers Leonard, who does get out to contest, but it's so late that it's almost like, oh, we haven't really done this before. I kind of forgot I'm supposed to close out to the corner and come yeah, out. Yeah. And that's the other peril is when you switch up defenses like this. And if you haven't run a one-two-two in a long time, then you're going to get guys like you know uh, Duncan Robinson, who looked—he just was confused. He was running you know back and forth like you know like a glitch on a two K. And then you're going to get a guy who doesn't close out. And then by the way, Iguodala looked a little bit like that too. There were moments where it looked yeah. like he might have been confused. I'm not so sure between man and zone because that's another big issue that you can run into where one guy's playing man and the other guys are playing zone. Then it's a, it could be a catastrophe. And that happened in game one a lot. That yeah. Was, that, that was a big thing I
0: wrote about after game one. There was a lot of plays where they were in man coverage, but some of the guys were treating their closeout responsibilities like they were still in zone. And it would lead to two guys just staring at the shot. And that did happen like probably three or four times in game two. But well, also – the Lakers just, like, forgot to rotate on, like, three different plays and gave up completely untouched drives. So that kind of, like, made up for it. I so think it was more than three.
1: I feel like, like he got to the hoop a lot, uh, you know. And then what you're describing for the Heat side, uh, a couple times even transition, LeBron comes down early. And nobody picked him up. It was a zone, I think, and they forgot to get into the zone. And so Tyler Hero, who, by the way, is the most undisciplined defensive player I've seen of all time. And you know what? It kind of works sometimes, but a lot of times it doesn't. He's just so out of position all over the place. And it might be the kind of thing where like, hey, you're you're talented. We love you. You know, let your instincts go. But, man, he's got to figure out better how to do that because – He's out of position I mean, so often. It's crazy.
0: He's he's 20 years old and he's to his credit. He's working his ass off. Yeah. And we saw that in game two after a pretty mediocre effort. Same thing with Robinson. I mean, they're not they don't know how to defend in the NBA yet, but they at least are working. And that's that's as much as you could really hope for. And that's why they're in zone. I well, yeah, but he, he could save energy. Because they can't handle switching,
1: and man, <laughs> Hero would save energy and be better on the offensive end because he he runs around like too much on on and gets out of position on defense. But uh, and that was one of them, yeah, LeBron. Yeah. I think Morris was another one. Literally, just could line up, lick his finger, and check the wind, and then shoot it. You cannot have that in the NBA in the, in the NBA finals. It just simply cannot happen. And it did. And you're talking about a ten point game that was like a like wouldn't budge. Uh, and I was actually surprised. I just look at the uh, at the box score breakout. It didn't seem like they, they. Each team only scored 21 points in that fourth quarter. It, it felt. Like, it felt like you know more. 21 points is pretty low these days for a quarter. And, um, and there's so many misses. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I, I guess it didn't feel that way watching it. So um, and even doing the, the breakdown, I didn't even look at those numbers. So um, it's interesting to see how it got bogged down, because obviously that huge third quarter was kind of back and forth. Um, and at the very least, we got a really exciting game, which is what I was hoping for. And it's one of the other root issues with the NBA, the Laker fans who were coming at me was that I think in the live show after game one, you know, I was lamenting, like, the injuries had just happened. They clearly, the game was over. I know they cut it to like 13 with like three minutes to go, whatever, but it was over. They took out their players by then, and, except LeBron was still in and um, AD, and you can fill in whatever reason you might want for that. But um, I just wanted because a good. It's the ba- finals. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not got, saying you gotta, this. You got to
0: play to the end. It's the finals.
1: Well, I'm not saying this, but, you know, LeBron had nine assists. Oh, sure, sure. And he probably wanted the triple-double in the finals. So whatever. But... Um, the point being that it's like, it's, to me, it's not good basketball when it's like a blowout and, you know, it, it, the game was decided by the end of the third quarter. Well, that doesn't make Laker fans feel very good because obviously they feel like there's good basketball because they're winning and doing all this stuff. And so it was a hard sell to try and convince those people that, um, you know, a good game is what most people want. <laughs> and at least we got that in game two. So I, I was pleased to be able to see that and to kind of live in a where I don't have to turn the game off early. That was really nice.
0: I have a very important question. You keep using this idiom um, that he could lick his finger and check the wind. Yes. What what does that mean? Does that mean that he had enough space that he could check the wind or he had enough time that he could check the wind?
1: Is there a difference?
0: I guess. I mean because you could say he has tons of space but doesn't have a lot of time. Or it could be he has he has space because he has so much time. Uh, it you know, definitely you be wide time. open and they're closing out on you.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say sense. time because yeah. that's that's the thing. You can take your time, you know, to make sure which way the wind is, and you can adjust, you know, like golf or whatever. Uh, I think it's time, but I because I hear you. By the way, that's another thing that's been hard for people to understand is that um, you know if you catch the ball and you begin your arm swing up, I don't know if we talk about this. because I talk about it so much now, I don't know who I'm talking about it with. But once once you begin the arm swing up and you have like a five foot radius around you. That's a wide open shot, right? Did we talk about this? No. No, but I I was about to ask you what you
0: think defines an open shot these days.
1: Because what you end up seeing is the guy challenges in the air and then right after the release, boom, his hand's right there. Oh, look at that. He really challenged the shot. Uh uh-uh. uh. If you have a pro shooter that's that's good, and he has a clear look at the rim as his arms are beginning to swing up, and he, you know he's got five six feet around him, I don't think it matters anymore. And in fact, I've talked to enough shooters in the NBA who claim, who tell me that that doesn't really bother them, even though um, the the statistics apparently had shown that the contesting in the air is what lowers percentage the most. Um, certainly, the shooters aren't talking about that as what really bothers them. What bothers them is the fear of somebody sliding underneath their feet, and they got to be more aware of that when they're landing. That, that kind of thing. Um, they're not worried about getting their shot blocked because simply it doesn't really ever happen uh, from the three-point uh, line. So uh, it's a really interesting thing that we're going to have to continue to study to figure out how best to defend these shots because the key to me would be what bothers you the most. And if it has, if it's a matter of like faking, getting underneath a shooter so that they think that you're going to, they're going to sprain their ankle, they land on them and then you get out of the way. Uh, And I don't know if that's, if that's even like, can you get a technical foul for doing that? I don't think so. But uh, you know, that's an interesting thing because we got to figure that out uh, from a defensive standpoint sooner than later.
0: Well, you're not a good shooter in this league. If you're landing on your feet, only a, a good shooter lands on their ass every single time. as Duncan Robinson has shown. You have right. to dive every single time you get contested, and that I forget who got called for the uh, landing space foul on him. I think it was Rondo. At yeah, the top of the arc yeah. where he turned his butt into Rondo. Rondo had completely sidestepped his landing area, and then Robinson turns his butt. His feet hit the ground. He could have stayed up if he wanted to, but he decided to dive. And I was—I think I tweeted like cracks my knuckle, cracking my knuckles for a tirade on landing space fouls. Oh, I think the the, the foul the, that new rule is being abused so badly and it's being called so poorly it's absolutely terrible i Uh, hate it i generally am a huge fan of of new rule changes this one has been a complete nightmare and they gotta they gotta overhaul
1: it well kuzma got one too and he jumped into the guy and it was not even like enough contact anyway let me just look at it because i have it right here um Oh, first of all, it was like he had landed already. Uh, Jay Crowder had pivoted around as he's flying by, and he, then he leans into him like almost after he landed and they gave it to him. Uh, they really are struggling with that. You know, the, that's, so that's a really common one that we keep seeing that the refs are really having trouble with. The, the less common one, by the way, just to throw it out there, that, they, that NBA refs who are really, really good and generally get a lot of these things almost perfectly done – they can't figure out what a kicked ball is, and it's driving me insane. I, <laughs> I've seen probably half a dozen in the playoffs alone where it has to be an intentional kick. You can't just dribble off a guy's foot and blow the whistle. If that was the case, if I was getting double teamed, I would just dribble the ball off a guy's foot. They would say, "Up, oh, here's your ball back, out of bounds." Can't do that. Uh, but uh, yeah, they 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 need to overhaul or figure out or re, maybe it's just retrain because I certainly think that the rule is important and we can't you know they have to let the guy land, but they but they are not doing it right. They're not seeing it right. Uh, they're not in the best position a lot of the time either. So, but yeah, that Duncan Robinson one was ridiculous. So was the Kuzma one, and it's just making a you know making it frustrating. I think on everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, the big thing is we're seeing that. Uh, contesting three-point shots I feel like has changed significantly in the last like three years because of the way defenses are set up you're now hard contesting running out to three-point shooters constantly so it's you're having way more bang bang contests than we've ever seen before and players also now have adapted a high jumping sway forward on their jump shot more than it seems ever before I don't know maybe I'm just noticing it more because I've because I kind of just learned about that like four or five years ago from you. Um, but it definitely seems like guys sway. I th- also, I think it's because Iverson and Kobe both swayed. And I think that influenced the whole generation of players that did that. Because Iverson used to sway- – he would like start like three feet behind the three-point line. He would land at like the foul line basically. <laughs> right. um, and so, you know, that's – I learned – I actually learned the sway when I was a kid because I studied uh, Ray Allen's shot and yeah. he didn't sway. And I, I was I was always like, how come I can't get enough power to take an NBA 3? I was like physically incapable of, it, incapable of it when I was a teenager. But I could shoot lights out from like 18 feet. And then I noticed how Iverson used to sway his feet forward. So I tried swaying my feet forward. All of a sudden, I could shoot from 25 feet like easily. I was like, holy shit, this is like the secret. And, it, and I shoot on my way up instead of when I'm at the top of my jump and jumping as high as I can. All of a sudden, I have all this power. And yeah it's I, I wish be, I I don't know why I was able to figure that out on my own and there's all these NBA players I can't figure it out even though they have all these coaches training them their whole, their yeah. whole lives but
1: I, I think it's know. a power calibration thing where uh, you know especially at the, the sizes they are in strength they probably are so worried about just throwing it over the rim that they it's really hard for them to get a handle on it. well I, you know if I really just extend my arm all the way so in my mind the sway almost works the other way it allows you to just really release with a, a clean straight arm straight uh, elbow fl- flick their wrist nice and strong and then the legs can then allow you to to, to navigate the power uh, like lessen the power because I guarantee you maybe if you're younger differently but if anybody were to, to you know put the ball up and just flick it as hard as they can with their elbow and the snap you're going to be long a lot of the time right so now you need to add more arc. And then that's, the, that's where the sway comes in. So um, it's a fascinating thing. And by the way, because we, we finally were able to um, uh, uh, sort of – talk about this way in a rational like in a real way whereas back in the day anybody who was doing it was just sort of naturally doing it no one was teaching that but now that we can mm-hmm. teach it with clear details you know like I mentioned this uh, in some other show I was on you know all the all 10 year olds when Steph just came on the scene and started doing them they're now you know 19, 20, 21 we're going to start seeing them in the NBA so I'm convinced we're going to see a lot of grid shooters coming up in the next three or four years as they were molded as young players by the new information that we got back in, like, 2010, 2011, 2012. So I'm excited about that. And that could be for every uh, size as well. That could be, you know, I mean, look at the KP's. Those, I mean, those guys could figure it out anyway, certainly if you're from Europe, except for freaking Giannis, who had it, and then they, whoever got to him in, in America just ruined it. But, you know, I think we're going to see a lot, a lot better shooting because we haven't really seen the three-point percentage go up appreciably forever, right, as a league. It's sort of stuck around yeah. that 36%, I think. I think it's because we're seeing um, players
0: take higher degree of difficulty shots. Like look at Trey young, Trey young came into the league and already had Steph Curry's game. Um, and instead of only taking really easy shots, he throws up 35 footers all the time, you know? So if he was really, if he was disciplined and he was taking just five three pointers a game and they were only really good shots, I bet he would be shooting 45 to 50% because we can see it. The guy's an absolute natural. Yeah. Um, and also just the defenses are now set up that they're not going to give a point guard. They're not going to allow a point guard to just come over a screen and, and put his, fo- his feet right in front of the line and step into a shot relaxed. So like you can't you can't do that anymore. For sure. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's going to it's going to go up soon. And also we're also seeing now everybody shoots threes. So all the bad shooters are shooting threes. So right. there's going to be some, you know, there's going to be some adjustment. I think at some point they're going to figure out a way to widen the court and then extend the line. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it because the whole reason they're not doing it is because you're losing courtside seats when you do that. So you know you, the most expensive seats are the closer to the to the floor. So you're probably going to lose one row of courtside seats, or you have to somehow manage to take out a back row in the loge, which is still worth a lot of money anyway. So then again. Ticket sales might not matter for a while. So right. knows, maybe they'll, true. Just, they'll just have a, a bigger court anyway. For
1: but a while. by the way, a wider um, court doesn't necessarily mean more sh- outside shots. If you expand the court wider, then you're going to have so much more room to drive, uh, as well. And that could be another really interesting thing because they're, you know, that closed out can get much longer depending on how many feet you're talking about. And I think that would actually, you know, almost open it up for the opposite way too, where all of a sudden guys are going to get into the lane more as well, which is probably what they want, right? I mean, everybody wants more scoring as it is, I suppose, even though it's a lot of scoring as it is right now. I don't know if we need to make it better on that end. So my, my point is that if you if you make
0: the the court wider and then you, you extend the, – that's so you can extend the three-point line. And then when you do that, teams are no longer going to be putting all their mediocre shooters out there because they're going to shoot – all these guys that are shooting 34 percent from three right now in the corners shooting 22-footers, if they have to start shooting 26-footers, they're going to be shooting 25 percent. And then it's no longer going to – be there's the you know the three point adage is no longer going to make sense. Well, so well then we you're going to get the mid range game back. You're uh, maybe 50, you're uh, going to get more Brandon Bass types.
1: Um, I don't. Okay, that, that's interesting. That would be we have to see it because I don't know if it creates mid range again. I mean, it might create the fifteen footer w- w- again, which would be nice. But that's I think what it, I'm saying. Yeah, they're, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, we're not going to go back to shooting the 20 twenty twenty two footers a lot anymore. That which is you now. But uh, but I do feel like you know they'll practice it, and they I bet you they can get back to you know their thirty some percent from whatever that is. I mean well, that's that's eventually. the real question. Is yeah, is is you know eventually you know. With, with the right practice and the right teaching, most of those guys, especially to get to the NBA, you know, should be able to adjust to some degree and get somewhere back there. But, but by the way, that's the other point: is you're right. The three point percentage would certainly go down for a while, and that's not what they want either, right? That's sort of the uh, the opposite effect uh, than uh, what the NBA would want. So I, it's an interesting conundrum. But, but uh, anyway, let's. What do you say we just dis- discuss what we think about what's going to happen in Game Three as we move on towards the end of our pod? What do you think? Sure. I like how
0: we were talking about Duncan Robinson and the three point uh, game, and then we got onto a tangent about how we need to change the court and all that crap. So, yeah, classic uh, Nick and Jared pod.
1: It's a Saturday afternoon, man, with not with no game tonight. So, uh, all right. So I think you're still
0: listening at this point. You're enjoying. it. Yeah,
1: right. If Bam if Bam comes back uh, at anywhere near eighty, eighty five, ninety percent, then I think they're going to win a game. They're going to get at least a game out of this series.
0: I I wouldn't even put that on the table. Maybe he's. If he's coming back, he's at like 60 to 70%. You know okay. What's good is it's an upper body injury. It's not right. a lower body injury, which I think is the most important thing for him because his positioning and his ability to move is his most valuable skill set. And he can play up – he can at least play defensively one-handed. They don't really need him on offense that much. They really need him on defense and on the boards. I, I know, but his passing – Oh, sure. But he can pass with one hand, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, the, right, the, sure. it, the thing is he never, he refuses to use his left hand to defend most of the time.
1: Um, he like, he hates using his left hand anyway. So I feel like losing, I don't know, not being I don't able know to if use that's right. I, I think I pointed out some really great plays in against the Celtics where he uses left hand to contest. It was like, whoa, uh, unless it wasn't Bam, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else, but I thought it was Bam. You, you want to say he doesn't um, use well, his left hand?
0: The block against Tatum at the end of Game One was with his left hand, yeah. and I remember everyone being like, "Wow, I can't believe can't believe he actually uses left hand for once." Oh, um, okay. Maybe I'm mistaking it, but I thought I remember that being a thing in the in the yeah. last series. But,
1: well, by the way, people do make a big thing about that, which they shouldn't. When a righty uses his left hand to contest, as if it's like making a left-handed hook from half court or something. No, you should be able to have both of those, but it, it is a, it is a deal. Like people will make uh, sometimes. I disagree. I di- I agree with
0: them because. You're right, it should be easy, but nobody does it. It's so rare. It is so rare for people to contest a shot with their offhand. It's just completely unnatural for them, especially because they tend to jump with one foot off of their left, if you're a righty, off of your left foot. So therefore, you're reaching out with your right hand. So it's really unnatural for someone to use their offhand. Right. When I was. I don't know why I keep bringing myself up, because the highest level I played was like my town league when I was a teenager. But I remember... That being a huge part of my defensive advantage when I was younger was people would try to go to my offhand and I always trained myself to know to use my offhand to contest so nobody could ever score on me because of that. And even in the NBA, you don't see it that
1: often. It's weird, but it would be, it's, uh, it's just training. That's all, you know. We we see a lot yeah. of offhand layups now. Left foot jump, left foot, left arm raised. <laughs> so it's the same thing, uh, and people are able to overcome the awkwardness of that. So, uh, you know, and there, by the way, there's no question we need to start using more of what we do on offense, on defense, uh, footwork wise and movement wise, because uh, it's the the offenses is getting too good. The sliding and the other traditional defense isn't is not nearly as effective as it used to be. So. Uh, all right, so you you don't think uh, so? C- can a sixty percent uh, effective or whatever uh, level Bam lead to a victory for the Heat in the game three?
0: Yeah, I think they could win it on like the last possession of the game. <laughs> It'll be. I do think Bam returning, even if he's struggling, is worth ten points. By the way, do I, you, think that, I think that can close that gap.
1: Your your prediction for game one was that you were you any close? Were you close at all when we in our remember that the show we did on locker room? I don't know, but there was no way in hell I picked – no, I remember I picked it to be
0: 107-102 Lakers, and it was – it was not that I know <laughs> I can remember that I'm yeah. gonna pull that up while right. I'm talking. Well, it, all right because well I was wrong yeah, yeah. it could have been that if anybody way, was even close to it was 116 to 98 so if anyone was even close to getting that
1: score good for them <laughs> but it was on its way to kind of maybe being that way before like some of the files and the injuries certainly but even though the Lakers did get control mm-hmm. before the injury stuff but um, you know the, we can't forget that like the heat opened up with a 13 point lead and like you know if Bam they took Bam out and again we, we'll, we'll talk about this later because I know we're getting to the but they took Bam out in, in that same way they take LeBron out in the middle of the first quarter and um, you know it could have been a mistake they could have gotten that lead to 18-19 and, and that changes the tenor of the you know the mental approach to it and it gives those guys, younger guys uh, you know some, some, some confidence but anyway alright so we'll, we'll be back again next week to talk and see how far we uh, along we are with the next like, couple games so um, but we'll see but Jared thank you for coming back on the show and discussing this a great conversation as always
0: that's it. We're only doing 45 minutes. I feel like we got another hour's worth of crap to talk about.
1: I mean, listen, I want to go and get outside and, uh, you know, enjoy the day <laughs> before it's too late. Dude, OK, my, my big question for you
0: is we saw Anthony Davis. I mean, his his game was huge because he had so many contested shots um, that I thought were pretty much as well defended as they could have been like that. I think it was the third quarter he had that baseline floater that he hit over like two guys at that, that shot was just insane. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to be his sustained level for the rest of the series oh. or is Miami going to be able to chip away?
1: I mean, I, I think the only one that could stop that stuff would be bam. Bam. And so if Bam can play and be effective at all on defense, then he can help and do that. I've seen plenty of evidence from the regular season where Bam would guard him one-on-one and do nicely against him. So, but other than that, no. I mean, if it's Olenek and if it's Myers Leonard and it's Crowder, it's like, forget about it. It's like playing against college guys. So, um, you know, that that's the thing. And, it, 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 you know, no asterisks to that. It's just what it is. Uh, we have to decide if there's an asterisk overall for the bubble and for whatever, but uh, the injuries you got to give the you know, LeBron's going to so. get it. We're not gonna remember well, do we all remember the injuries that LeBron had to go through uh, when the Warriors won their first title? like maybe we still do, I don't know, but um, you know <laughs> those go away.
0: It's funny. the only asterisk I think I would put on this is that LeBron's not playing like completely hobbled at this point, which is funny because I feel like I feel like every finals that he's been in, he yeah. was like grinding his way through it and was covered like they would literally push him around in a nice tub. After the games, you know, he was barely his body was barely able to survive it at that point, even though he had kind of like coasted through the season. Oh, I, I mean, I, I'm
1: well,
0: aware of that. OK. Well, I mean, it wasn't like he was injured, but just like he was so beat up because he was playing the highest usage in the history of the game, basically, for like three months straight. Mm-hmm. Um And so I it seems like he's not really nearly struggling at that physical level or just he doesn't have to grind at that level, especially considering. Now that he's playing with AD, he doesn't have to take on that same kind of physical burden. So it, I'm joking about the asterisk part. It's just like it, this team is built perfectly right. for old LeBron. And and all the other guys,
1: all the other Lakers are really physical. They are. Even Caruso is physical, man. He's, and he, play, he yep. plays defense. Uh, I mean, my favorite moment, though, was when Olenek goes to the hole and a nice, like, hesitation on the one-two off both feet to go up and draws an and-one against LeBron. And you could just see the indignance, I guess if that's a word, that LeBron's face of, like, how dare you do anything like that to me? And then he was, like, trying to yell it at, you know, AD for a bad closeout, which there was, but it was like at some point, hey, you got to, like, you know, protect the rim a little bit. Uh, I, I It was a really fascinating, uh, th- just to see him, just to see him so, like, like, you know, this, this mortal is, is is scoring on me. That's, an, that's not right. And by the way... No, that's so right. That's the, so right. The heat, the heat could do this. The Heat could target LeBron if they really wanted to. You mentioned Kendrick Nunn scoring on him. They could do that, and they could get more buckets on him if no one does it. It's the weirdest thing. And uh, again, here come LeBron, hate, people calling me LeBron hater. But I'm telling you, if they were to ISO a little bit or figure out ways to attack him one-on-one, they would have some success. No one has done it, hardly ever. It's very strange to me that's why it would have been cool to see maybe, like, Giannis make the finals because I think some of the lineups would have caused him to have to guard Giannis and, like, Giannis could have posted him up. And it would have been interesting. So, But anyway. That would have been very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen. But anyhow. So, well, listen. Thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. Um, we'll check in with you, uh, you know, later. Uh, it's already Saturday, but next week later sometime. And uh, stay safe out there. Wear your mask. Um, wash your hands. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at D-Ball Breakdown. We're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? You and Jared, I'm in my underwear.